Hello and welcome back, Weekside Podcast listeners. I am Jenny Brentis here with Connor Orr, and it is an exciting time of the NFL season. We saw the Bills win the division for the first time since 1995, which was a pretty remarkable achievement and was met with great celebration in Buffalo. We saw the return of Drew Brees from what sounded like a very painful rib injury. He looked a little bit off, but uh, they still have a couple weeks to get right for the playoffs, and hopefully they will have Michael Thomas back for the playoffs as well. Uh, so we're uh, lots to sort through this week, as usual, Connor, and uh, we just wanted to hit those two teams off the top because we have many other topics to cover in this week's news items. I mean, it was so funny because, you know, when you're trying to map out your Sunday, you're sitting there and you're saying, well, what's the premier thing? What's the premier matchup? And it's obviously Saints and Chiefs and, and Drew Brees is coming back. And, you know, it just felt like such a such a obvious thing to write about if you're, you know, kind of planning your afternoon out. And then, you know, all of a sudden, so many other things start happening in these periphery games that, you know, it's crazy. I mean, for the first time, uh, probably in a couple weeks, like, I was barely in tune to the to the Romo Nance, uh, you know, mm-hmm. prestige matchup of the week, and then you know, I obviously went back and watched Drew Brees. There was certainly some concerning aspects there, but this week was just bustling, and not for the reasons we expected it to be. Yeah, it would have been easy to watch the afternoon window and not notice that Breeze wasn't at 100% because there was so much other stuff going on, namely the Jets' big upset of the Rams, which will be our first news topic, which has ripple effects, of course. But yeah, it wasn't until kind of later in the game and um, looking back, watching his slow start, Breeze started 0 for 6 in the game, and you could look at some of the throws that just seemed a little bit off and his comments post-game that he wasn't 100%, but he still wanted to play. So something is not quite right there. The question is, will he be able to get no football players 100% during the season? You always hear them play. You hear them say, excuse me, but will he be able to get closer to 100% uh, so that it's not as noticeable, perhaps, in the performance moving forward? Yeah, it'll be interesting because we all assumed that Drew Brees, not that this was planned in any way, shape, or form, but it felt like years prior where maybe he got that injury, was able to take that time to rehabilitate, but also to let his body heal up in time for the playoffs, and then he comes back um, a little bit stronger than he was before, but the nature of that rib injury is probably such that it's difficult, a little more difficult to heal than maybe some of the things that he was dealing with in the past. By the way, keeping a little tally down there, we read some of your reviews that you left for us on um, on Apple Podcasts, and uh, thank you so much for doing that. Um, we ask every week. It really does help people find the show. The biggest complaint, Jenny, of the Weekside Podcast was that I say you know too much as a filler word in between my sentences. So today, I am marking it down with a little piece of paper every time I say it, just to make sure that uh, maybe it's like sort of a teaching tool or something like that, you know? Connor, I don't think that criticism was just directed at you. (laughs) I think I am also complicit in the use of you know. In fact, probably more complicit. Did you know... Oh, well, that doesn't count. That That's does not, a, not count. That, that is not a filler <laughs> word. That is crucial to the sentence. Uh, but did you know that in college, I had uh, no idea that my roommate was in a sociology class and they were talking about the usage of the word like as a filler word. And for a week, he he 
tallied my usage of the word like without my knowledge. Oh my God. He sat there at his desk and he marked it down on a little piece of paper every time I said the word like for a week. And I was like, Andrew, this is like, I feel a little, uh, you know, it's it's not okay. You know, total breach of trust. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I guess that's what I don't know. You have more of a science background than I do. Is that ethical by any sort of scientific standards there? I don't know. I mean, I guess you would not be able to accurately chart it if the person knew that they were partaking in the study. But perhaps a more ethical way to do it would have been to analyze some kind of like recorded conversation or Mm. something you know, something less personal in a one-on-one setting where you're marking down every time your friend is saying a word. That just seems a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And and he didn't tell me for like a month. And then all of a sudden, I think another friend of ours was in the room and that person left from California. And I was like, man, that person says that word all the time. And he said, well, do you know how many times you say it? And then all of a wow. sudden brings this up. And I was like, wow, uh, wow. just crazy. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, when I said recorded conversation, you know, maybe some kind of, you know, lecture that was recorded or some kind of something that was made public in some other way rather than a personal one-on-one interaction. Well, yeah, but just know, uh, everyone, that I am, I'm marking it down, I'm going to do it, you know, and I know that I did it uh, right after I said that I was going to do it. So that's, I think, two or three already for the show. I have three. Oh, boy. So I'm, I'm going to... Why don't you record to... mine as well? I mean, I'm consenting <laughs> to being part of the study, Connor. I'm not going to put that... Great, I'm not going to put that on anybody. I'm not going to put that on anybody. Um, but all right, let's, uh, let's get to news topic number one because this was maybe my favorite moment of the 2020 NFL season. The Jets defeated the Rams on Sunday, marking one of the most stunning results in modern regular season history. The victory dramatically altered the top of the draft board, almost guaranteeing that Clemson star quarterback Trevor Lawrence now lands in Jacksonville instead of New York. What did you make of the whole spectacle, and do you think the Jets made a horrendous mistake? I would say that I thought that game gave me more confidence in the NFL as a product moving forward than anything I've seen recently and maybe since I've started covering the NFL. I love the fact that the Jets came out like a house on fire and although their first drives, they've scored on their first drives of the last eight games, which is crazy, but came out like a house on fire, uh, started playing extraordinarily well, uh, tightened up at the end of the game. This was the league's best defense, uh, you know, high-powered Sean McVay offense. And they managed to somehow come out ahead of this. And it just solidified all the things that we had been talking about and a couple other people have been talking about. You can't really tank as well in the NFL. Try as you might. I mean, you did that great story on the Dolphins during that year where they did that systematic teardown. But Brian Flores is such a good coach. And they ended up that year 5-11 and and picking fifth in the draft. And... I feel like it's a testament a little bit to how far players can just stand being pushed around and, you know, sort of this, I don't know, collective will or whatever it is. And it was just, uh, it was really cool to see it. I was happy for them. And I I, I don't think any person there cares one iota that Trevor Lawrence isn't going to be in the locker room next year. Yeah, I am with you, Connor. I thought it was 
a really great moment for the players and the coaches. Gary and I talked a little bit about this on the Monday morning podcast, but when I did that tanking story, I remember talking to players who were part of the Browns 0-16 season. One was Kevin Zeitler. Uh, He joined the Browns for the winless 17 season before being traded to the Giants. He said, no matter what, the players that year, that's your resume. You were part of the 0-16 team. Whatever part of your career you are in, you are not going to be looked at the same simple fact so it's something that really sticks with you so I was happy for them to shed that burden that they would have to carry around for the rest of their careers and being this reference point for another team that would potentially be on the verge of going 0-16 and they did it in a way that was impressive I mean that Marcus May fourth down breakup the tackle from the punter on the uh, kick return that could have gone for a touchdown if the punter did not stop him so For players and coaches who are on the field, they are playing for their careers, their contracts, for their pride, to not get injured. They're playing for a lot of reasons, none of which have to do with the future of the franchise that they may not be part of for very long. Braden Mann. Like, they should have let him finish the game at linebacker. That was (laughs) uh, incredible. One thing that I thought was interesting was... Sean McVay, you look out there, and that's a four, it's a fourth down. you got to have it. And Jared Goff, whatever the play call is or how the progression works, Jared Goff ends up throwing the ball to potentially the one capable cover, <laughs> cover person in the Jets' secondary. Like That is a really bad secondary. It's a secondary full of holes, and Marcus May is probably, well, not probably, is unquestionably your best player back there. And it's funny that he is the one that ended up getting targeted. I know it's a one-on-one matchup, so obviously that's something to take into consideration there. But the whole thing was fascinating how it unfolded. Um, and right down to the picture-perfect way that he played that ball. I mean, there's so many potential for a flat there or some sort of incidental contact but that was it was the whole thing was picture perfect yeah and even after the Jets stopped the kick return the Rams were taking over in Jets territory trailing by three points so it looked clear that they would score in some fashion whether to take the lead or to send it into overtime and the fact that the Rams could not advance the ball far enough I think was some reason for alarm. I mean, maybe it was an off day. They had looked good for most of the second half after a dreadful first half. But in that situation, they couldn't advance the ball a small distance. And then they had a third and four and then a fourth and four couldn't, couldn't advance the ball for four yards. So, um, you know, as a team that's headed to the playoffs, you know, maybe this game doesn't end up mattering. They face Seattle next week for, you know, the de facto NFC West title game. But I I did think that there were some concerns that showed up with the Rams offense, uh, particularly how vulnerable they are to pressure. It's almost as if they were a bird team the way that they've been (laughs) at this point. Um, We did have a big bird matchup, by the way. We did. Which we failed to preview last week. I was like, wow, we really failed. Yeah, that was a that was a bad job by us. Um, I'm going to take it one step further and tell me if I'm getting too sappy here, but, um, and, and to be clear, I'm not against the, and this is going to be a painfully kind of egregious way of describing this, but the Ivy Leagueification of the NFL, the systematic way in which teams are tearing down and rebuilding, and not, not that it's, it's, it, not that it's resembled that sort of homogenous feel like baseball has, but that it will get there at some point. I think that's a natural progression there. But, you know, I was thinking about, you know, parents around here uh, taking a kid to a Jets game 
for whatever reason and you know it's just the end of a lost season and it's not a pandemic and I could imagine like imagine if that game was home and they're 0-13 and it's the one game you can get tickets for that year whatever the reason may be and then your kids see something like amazing like that like I thought from a very visceral like base layer level that's the kind of game that you know that brings in the next generation of people and doesn't leave them jaded to, you know, what the league may become in some way, shape or form. I don't know. Is that, is that taking it a bridge too far? No, I mean, there was something to learn from that, that you can always keep fighting. You could win on any given Sunday. Like that it. magic is alive in some level. Of course. Yeah. I like it. I don't know. I was, I was a big fan. Um, it was a fun fun watch and i i just kept saying like please you know because i was writing furiously the whole time and i was like, please just l let me be able to use some of this stuff so i don't have to go back and then rewatch the saints game before i have to write off the saints game so thank you jets too for kind of streamlining my afternoon that was also uh, appreciated and of course the ripple effects from the game connor now it appears likely that lawrence will end up in jacksonville jacksonville has the easier strength of schedule so if they end the season with the same record as the jets then jacksonville would have the number one pick right now they both are one win teams and so it looks like it's lining up for lawrence to be in jacksonville which i think is a disastrous outcome for him disasters might be too strong but i think it is not the outcome that you would hope for uh, it is probably the worst possible outcome for a team to land with. But you seem to think differently. Yes. Yeah, so wait, you th you if you were Trevor Lawrence, you would rather go to the Jets? For sure. What? Wait, why? I mean, you think the Jaguars are a better... I mean, I know the Jets have their flaws, but I, I just... I'm not sure that there's anything that the Jaguars have done that would make me think that they would maximize his talents. Not saying the Jets have, but... True. Uh, you know, you're going to a small market with a team that has a history of pushing away star players. Um, there's been a lot of strife there. Of course, they're headed for a new regime, it seems. But um, I would say you would always rather be in New York than Jacksonville. I think that there's a comfortability to the small market thing. If you look at maybe Peyton Manning in Indianapolis, that there might have been an attraction there in terms of an ability to lead a somewhat quieter life uh, than you would in New York or New Jersey or wherever it is. And I don't know, I think for me, if I'm, you know, projecting myself as like a star quarterback, you do want that relative anonymity, which you're just not going to get. And now the flip side of that is Eli Manning, I think, did find a slice of that in New Jersey over the years like there are places that he could go um, for dinner and not be bothered he stayed out of the tabloids and and I think Trevor Lawrence could be that that same kind of person that same kind of player but if you're Trevor Lawrence also you know you get the nice little beach place and then you go to London and become an international superstar a couple times a year you're contradicting yourself here though <laughs> you're saying that the New York market is too overwhelming but then you want him to become an international superstar I know. in London I know I that think took I'm a just turn, Cotter. I think I'm just so jaded by my tenure covering the Jets that I don't want to. I would never want to go to work there uh, every day as a as a player um, and and do that. That said, uh, Trevor, if you do end up here, uh, uh, live very close to the facility. If you ever need a place just to to come and relax, you know, you're always yeah. welcome. Yeah. You know? Well, I would say there are some ways to have a quiet life while playing for the Jets, as you just referenced. You can 
live close to the facility in New Jersey. You're about an hour from the city. So, you know, clearly there's a lot of media coverage and a lot of interest when you're the franchise quarterback in New York. And we've seen this play out multiple times. We covered Mark Sanchez's arrival, for instance. But um, I just, you know, I think if you had to compare the two situations, going to a one-win team is never a good thing. I mean, that's the reality of what happens when you get picked with the number one overall pick. You're going to a team that was very bad the year before. But in this case, you know, you're going to a team that has been bad for multiple years running. It's not like going to the Colts when... Peyton Manning had missed the previous season with a neck injury. So it's a different situation. And I would say comparing the Jaguars to the Jets, I would rather go to the Jets. Interesting. I'm just like, I I pulled up the lineup just to kind of get us. So I would say that the Jets, you you do have your left tackle of the future, which is a a tremendous, um, is a tremendous bonus if you're Lawrence. Um, The Jaguars, uh, they need to re-sign Cam Robinson. They have a good offense interior offensive line but they they need help there i would say the receivers uh, kind of a wash to me i mean chenault uh shark cole i mean i think that there's some talent there i don't know i i, I uh maybe the jaguars are just slightly more talented but at the same time you don't know what the new head coach is going to be who it's going to be you don't know who the new gm is going to be what direction they're going in there and there does seem to be, um, as I did, uh, um, I did receive a flurry of uh, direct messages after suggesting the Jets, even if they got the number one pick, should trade it anyway, um, saying that there is a lot of seems to be a lot of faith in Joe Douglas. So uh, a lot of people think that he could be the guy um, that might be able to uh, to turn this around. So maybe that's uh, part of the calculus too. If he's looking at, you know, which team could actually build me a winner here, uh, maybe Joe Douglas ranks high on that list too. And now we have to think about the conversation we've been having in the context of the Jets for the last few months. Would Trevor Lawrence pull an Eli Manning? And the idea would be, or the question as it was posed for the last few months is, would it be with the Jets because he didn't want to go to the Jets? And now it becomes, would it be because he does not want to go to the Jaguars? And I think it's a still, you know, it's not a likely thing that players do that, but it's definitely possible. And if somebody would have the power to do it, it would be Lawrence, whose arrival in the NFL has been anticipated for years since he was a true freshman. Imagine if he was just like, no, none of you guys. I don't want to go to either of these places. Send me to California. <laughs> oh, man. It is. It is. The possibilities could be endless, Connor. That's true. All for players maximizing the power they have, though. So yeah, we'll be interested to see what, what happens. All right. Topic number two, Connor. The New England Patriots have missed the playoffs for the first time in 11 years and for only the third time in Bill Belichick's tenure as head coach. Jenny, the last time things were this uncertain in New England, it was back in 2000. I was failing sixth grade English, and you, if I'm not mistaken, were gearing up for a starring role in a smash hit MTV reality docudrama. Is that true? Um, no, that is not true. I mean, my college newspaper was the subject of a documentary. Is that what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. I don't want people to think that I was on some like MTV reality show, though. True. So just, yeah, you just were to not clarify on, here. This is not okay. Jersey Shore. Yeah. Okay. No, this was okay. the paper. It was called the paper. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Uh, do we think this season is a sign of long slog to come in New England, or is it simply the breakdown before another quick buildup? What do you think? Well, I made this point to Gary on the Monday morning podcast as well. And I think we talked about this a couple of weeks back, but it really has just been ringing truer and truer each week. But 
when the report came out in the summer that, or, or that in training camp, Bill Belichick had considered moving Stefan Gilmore, I think that's when we should have realized that he knew that this season was going to be a wash and that mm-hmm. they were going to underachieve. I mean, they had high profile opt outs, Dante Hightower. Uh, they got Cam Newton, who we thought, you know, there was uh, a range of potential outcomes. Some could be very good. It has not gone the way that they hoped. Things seem to get off track a little bit when he was on the COVID-19 reserve list early in the season after a hot start to the year and just has not come together the way it looked like it might the first few weeks of the season. But I think what Belichick was seeing was that there was a roster in need of a lot of work. And it was even last season, but they had Brady. They had some of the players who have either opted out this season or who have gone to other teams like Kyle Van Noy. And so looking at the roster, it does need a lot of work. And it's sort of hard to make the calculation of what's going to happen in the future because we know that Bill Belichick has often made more out of players or a roster that looked like it had some deficiencies, right? But he did so with a quarterback that could do so on offense, who could make up ground for for players around him that, you know, might not be at the same level as their peers at other positions or their peers at the same position around the league. Um, So I think this team does need a lot of work, and I think they have a lot of questions moving forward. They need to address the the aging secondary. They need to figure out a solution at the quarterback position, and there aren't clear fixes to those things right now. It's interesting that uh, along those lines, though, it seems like for the first time that I can remember, there there are there is more ammo in the, in the chest in terms of what they can use to solve those problems. I think that they're going to come up on, uh, as of right now, without any more cuts. I think they have the second most or third most cap space heading into the 2021 offseason, plus a top 15 pick as it stands right now, which are things that Belichick just doesn't have in the past. And maybe he trades back like he always does and accumulates more. But, um, you know, I I think it's going to be fascinating to see where he goes with this because in a lot of ways he had a version of that team that was so good for 20 years and the players came and went, but it had the same sort of feeling and it was constructed around this idea it's almost like he has to start over and I think it's a fun opportunity to see the greatest coach in NFL history basically start from scratch if that's what he wants to do and really build this thing from the ground up with uh, I don't know a new quarterback a bunch of new weapons I think that's exciting yeah I think it'll be interesting to see how he does this moving forward uh, because there's just because there's a lot of work to do doesn't mean I don't think they'll be good again soon. We have certainly learned to not underestimate Belichick. I mean, that was why I was reluctant to not put them in the playoffs this year. I, I did. I picked them to win the division just because I thought, okay, they've got Cam Newton. Um, they're going to make this work. And ultimately, there were just too many flaws to overcome. But I do think they can you know, get back to those winning ways quickly because we've seen Belichick do – more with when even when there are deficiencies on the roster in the past they just need to get back to doing that but yeah Connor this is kind of like the early 2000s where now we're getting to see that process uh, see how he puts together the roster see this kind of retooling or rebuilding period and how he approaches that which isn't something we've seen in a long time yeah 
It's going to be interesting. Uh, but it just felt weird, didn't it? I, yeah. I was watching the end of the Dolphins game, and and the whole time you're just expecting New England to come back and prolong this, but it's all very just 2020 of the whole thing. It's just, If you were to tell me that the Browns already had 10 wins and were in the playoffs and the Patriots would be out at this point in the season, I would have told you you were crazy. It was an unexpected turn of events for sure. Okay, topic number three. The Panthers have parted ways with general manager Marty Herney, clearing the way for Matt Rule to select a personnel executive who aligns with a new era of Panthers football. Herney's place in Panthers history is a bit of an odd one. He built a good portion of the team's 2015 Super Bowl roster before getting replaced by Dave Gettleman, then was rehired when Gettleman was fired and let go again. What will his legacy ultimately be in Carolina, and where should the Panthers go from here? I think he deserves a little bit of credit. He drafted Cam Newton, developed Cam, helped develop Cam Newton. Uh, I think Luke Keekley was uh, one of his guys as well. Basically, like a- anyone that you would associate with the first uh, real class of Panthers legends, quote unquote, that was all him. And I think that there's something to be said there. I think he had a pretty good run um, as as general manager of the, of the Panthers. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think the firing is anything other than it's time to fully usher this new era in. I mean, when he was rehired, it was sort of a bridge, I thought, to whatever the next era would be. Perhaps the only surprise is they didn't make this move when they brought Rule in. They clearly had a lot of confidence in Rule from the beginning. But now after his first season... Rule will have input. Perhaps he maybe has a clearer idea of what he would want in a partner as general manager. So they're just fully going in on this new chapter, which makes sense. And um, I think it's you can both say that Herney has contributed a lot to Panthers football and that it's a time for a new start as well. Yeah, I I don't know where they would go from here. There are certainly no shortage of... GM hot lists that are all around and and maybe I'm uh, of a, of a certain way but I I almost feel like I would never hire anybody on any of those lists because if coaches are different you can trace certain things that go back to something that they directly do on the field it's harder because we're not in team's front offices you know Mm -hmm. there is no uh video of what they're doing uh before the draft so we don't know what's happening and a lot of times i feel like the people who end up on those lists are the people who want to end up on those lists and maybe there are people who are doing good work that don't necessarily come to the forefront but matt rule is an interesting guy maybe he does something a little different here and i think that uh As I've seen a couple people speculate, that is going to be a really attractive job, I think. You're going to have a high draft pick. You're going to have a lot of cap space. um, You're going to have the chance to really mold a roster in your image. You have a good coaching staff. I I think all that will be sort of a big draw and an interesting shakeup because the flip side of that is a lot of GMs, as we've talked about on this show before, survived last season's hiring uh, coaching uh, firing cycle, but I don't think that is necessarily going to be the case this year. I think there are a lot of people who are expecting the come uh, things to kind of wash back on some of the GMs who've been hanging around on that hot seat for a long time. And with Carolina in the fold now, that's it's an interesting competition. It, it kind of takes one good candidate out of the mix, I think, for some other teams who need a GM. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really attractive position, especially compared to some of the other openings. I mean, you look at Houston, where they have depleted draft capital, um, and there are you know questions around the league about what Jack Easterby's role will be moving forward. You have Atlanta, where they're essentially in a really cap nightmarish position that the next general manager will have to manage. So 
for all the reasons you laid out, I, I think it's probably the most attractive opening so far. Yeah, I think so. If I guess you were, except for the person who gets to pick Trevor Lawrence, because then you just get a <laughs> slam dunk of a pick as your first. Uh, I don't know. You, I would say the pressure is certainly off for that moment right there. Right. right that That right. is like, OK, uh, I've gotten the job. Uh, this is the one thing I don't have to do. Um, although there's a. Uh, uh, I know we bring this up a lot, but the classic NFL uh, hard look at the NFL uh, feature film draft day with <laughs> Kevin Costner, where everyone thought Bo Callahan was the number one pick, the guy from Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, Kevin Costner on draft day starts doing some calling around. Turns out that none of Bo's friends, none of Bo's teammates went to his 21st birthday party, which was a big red flag for him that eventually led to him uh, trading the pick back after acquiring it. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's just uh, it's it's a heart racer. It's a white knuckle adventure from start to finish. Totally recommend Glad we got to go down that little detour, Connor. <laughs> By the way, that takes me. That speaking of uh, people who have left nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, somebody said that Jenny is the conscience of the show, and she puts up with a lot of uh, basically <laughs> what, did not what we just. That. I swear, somebody said that. Like uh, Jenny is the conscience of the show. They said that, and also that uh, you basically do a very good job of of entertaining those uh, brutally painful asides. So good little weak side pod in a nutshell there. No, I mean, the reality is just I still haven't seen the film, Connor, so I was a little out of my depth. So I figured, you know, I would just cover that up by moving on. There we go. Uh, Here's a fun one for number four that I know you're both kind of excited to get to. Uh, The Raiders lost to the L.A. Chargers on Thursday Night Football this past week brings John Gruden's record to 63-79 and since winning a Super Bowl with the Buccaneers back in 2002. In three years with Oakland slash Las Vegas, Gruden is four and twelve, seven and nine, and now seven and six. With I'm going to pull a Steve Kornacki here, a 99 percent <laughs> chance of missing the postseason for the third straight year, and that's even if he wins out. Uh, so, is if this were any other coach in the NFL besides John Gruden, besides the Raiders, would that person be invited back for a fourth season? I would say that the answer is a resounding uh, no. But uh, again, this is John Gruden, so he will be here uh, probably until uh, my kids go to college. So, And at the very least, Connor, we would be talking about John Gruden as being on the hot seat if this was not the coach that Mark Davis spent years searching for, his white whale, right? Trying to get him to come back to Las Vegas. If he did not have a 10-year contract, we would definitely be talking about him on the hot seat. But he's not on the hot seat for those reasons. And I think if you look at the track record, one thing that stands out to me is that this third year was the bill, the year that the team said it was building towards. I was out at training camp in 2019 when they were in Napa, Hard Knocks was there and the players kept talking about our first year in Vegas. That's when we're going to shock the world. That's when everything's going to come together. So this is that year. And they looked for a time like they were on that direction. Things were coming together. They upset the Chiefs. Um, Derek Carr had been playing well. And now they've just stumbled during the last stretch of the season. And I think at the very least that would invite scrutiny. But because of the situation and because of the contract that they gave him, it doesn't make sense to entertain that scrutiny because Mark Davis isn't going to move on from the guy that he spent years questing after. It's just like the 10-year contract feels like one of the worst 
managerial decisions of like the of the last of a long time. I mean, that is coaching contracts are so much harder to get out of than player contracts and who knows what the Raiders cash flow situation is to this point. I mean, can you buy him out even if you wanted to? I don't know. I mean, there's so many questions about what that's like moving forward and I, I like imagine if it doesn't get better, you know? And, right. and this team is is you know, this isn't this isn't necessarily just a, a knock on Gruden. I think you can say this about a few other people, but imagine if this team is in a lot of other places in the NFL, like Darren Waller, uh, Derek Carr, um, the way that some of these players have come along, the offensive line, what they were able to spend on the offensive line to get them going. If you put that team in a lot of other hands, I think that that team is close to winning the division or really tightly in contention. And yes, I know that you're in the same division as the Chiefs, and so there's some uh, other mitigating factors there. To ca- and you did beat the Chiefs once, but I-, I can't help but think that they're underperforming a little bit and. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do in year four if you don't make the playoffs and year five? And John Gruden's going to have to start over at quarterback again at some point. And when ever in his career has he shown an ability to do that? The one high pick that he made at the position was a disastrous flame out that, um, you know, and the whole time he was looking around the league trying to emergency sign other veterans because he didn't like how everything was going. So uh, that whole thing is just alarming to me and I think that all of the planning all of the cap space all of the all, trading all that stuff that you did to get to this point might be for for not if you can't turn this around and it certainly looks like they're not going to make the playoffs this year and and who knows what's going to happen next year some of your best offensive linemen are like Richie Incognito's 37 38 you know and at what point uh, what point is that whole thing you're going to have to replace all those guys and i don't know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit but i think that the the point is that this could get scary in a hurry for mark davis if this doesn't turn around yeah and back to your earlier point i do think mike mayock has done a really good job of building that yeah. roster even the move to bring in marcus mariota i mean that looked like it was going to pay off when Derek Carr goes out with a groin injury early in the game against the Chargers, Mariota played well, but there was some questionable play calling towards the end of that, towards the end of um, when they had the chance to go ahead, right? And then just seemed like Gruden was trying to get too cute, excuse me, towards the end of regulation was the word I was looking for. Um, Not really sure why I'm struggling with my words this much, but (laughs) it looked like he was about to blow his top on the sideline every time they zoomed in on Gruden. It did not seem like a person who was cool and in command of the situation, despite the fact that he had a backup quarterback who came in and was playing well and had a chance to win the game late, and then they just didn't. Yeah, it's, uh, man... Uh, I I don't know what what else to say there. And uh, you're right, though. I think Mike Mayock has established himself and good for him as, you know, even if this whole thing flames out um, as a guy who can hold his water, certainly in the personnel realm, um, which I think is great for other uh, people, especially like a a Lewis Riddick, who we've seen interview at places before. And hopefully that um, some of those guys can get the chance um, as well to, uh, maybe if you come from a non-traditional route um, and you're still involved in personnel to get that chance, but also, uh, you know, a- a- any of those avenues and stuff like that. But I, I don't know what the end game is here because you're gonna have to you're gonna have to 
do a second deal here with the quarterback. You're going to have to, I don't know, there's just so much uncertainty, and I don't know, uh, I don't know how he's going to handle it. It's going to be interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is a, um, is an uncertain future for the Raiders with John Gruden, but they're committed to him for so long that this is really their only option. And I think this year's finish is, you know, they're not out of the playoffs, but for all intents and purposes, they are. It would take a lot to get in. And I think that's a really disappointing turn for the Raiders. Six years from now, we will uh, hopefully, Jenny and I, be in person watching a a Raiders game together, uh, chronicling the, uh, the last days of the Gruden uh, regime that would be uh you know it's hard to project anything six years down the road but maybe that'll be the case for us who knows all right connor shall we move on to topic number five let's do it all right happy holidays connor by the time some of our listeners who celebrate christmas get this they all be preparing socially distant festivities and maybe even some presents under the tree if you had to give a present to someone in the nfl this year what would it be and why I would give a brand new contract to Mitch Trubisky, Jenny. Woo! That's what I would do. I am so happy for him. We've talked about this on the show before, um, and I don't think enough gets put into, you know, the NFL is such a world of machismo and how you're, you know, these like classically horrendous definitions of mental strength and toughness and, you know, everything that he had to overcome to get to this point. Uh, I think that they've scored 30-plus points or something three or four times in a row, which they haven't done in like 10 years um, since he's come back and played quarterback. He's outscored Foles. He's outthrown Foles. uh, And this after being benched for Foles. And, you know, this was a guy who everyone said in the past – uh, couldn't handle the scrutiny. They had to turn off the TVs in the facility. And, you know, I think a lot of stuff got out there about Trubisky, uh, you know, on purpose. And at the same time, he's sitting there biding his time, comes back. And, you know, the Bears have like a 30% chance of making the playoffs. This is a formidable um, quest at this point still. So I am extremely happy for Mitch Trubisky. I think that, you know, for anybody in, um, any walk of life that is told that they're not good enough, that they're not tough enough, um, and 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 you feel that outside pressure, uh, it's it's good to see someone kind of rise up and uh, and overcome and get the bag because I think that's what he might do at this point. Yeah, that's a great one. He may be the best option for the Bears in 2021, which is a pretty stunning turn of events. My present, Connor, is I would like to gift the Ravens a loss either from the Colts, Dolphins, (laughs) or the Browns. Not to say that I don't want the Raiders, or excuse me, not not to say that I don't want any of the other teams to win out or that I want to prevent someone else from getting in the playoffs. But just from the Ravens' perspective, they are a really good team. They are exciting. They are fun to watch. I would love to see them in the playoffs. And so even if they get to 11-5, and they still need a loss from one of those other teams. And because of that, uh, if someone was assigning a Christmas or a holiday gift to the Ravens, that would be it. I like that one. I think that that is going to be... I would dread seeing them in the postseason, and I think that they're going to be a lot of fun to see in the postseason. That Browns game was just too much fun uh, to to close the book on the Ravens at this point. I think that I, I totally agree. Having them in the off season or the postseason would be a total blast. Yeah, it would be really. Uh, you know, they're just a good team that's kind of coming to its own later in the season, and so you know, 
if they do make it into the postseason, I just use you know, Connor. I hope you're tallying that on your list. If they do make it into the postseason, they will be a team that no one wants to face and that everybody would want to watch. That might be the first one for you. I'm at seven for me. So, uh, yikes. So, uh, we're working on it. You know, I'm going to – oh, eight. Okay. It's in, it's ingrained. You know what? Ah, uh, man, nine. Uh, this is not saying it, but you know what it is? It's uh, that was. I think I had a teacher or a coach or something, and that was their tick. And and you just pick up on that, and, and like a formidable, moldable time in your life when somebody else does that, and all of a sudden you just find it subconsciously, kind of busting into every one of your sentences i hear ya i hear ya man i mean i have the same issue connor so no judgment here <laughs> oh good uh what do you say we uh we get to the uh to the oracle sounds good all right so for my oracle this week we're going to start getting down that road of the off season and looking into some of the possibilities for teams uh, who may need a quarterback uh, that don't involve the NFL draft. And one of the things that I love about this week, and Jenny, you touched on it a little bit before, but was the emergence of Marcus Mariota in that game. He looked like a different guy than he was during his time in Tennessee. And, you know, he had so many different coordinators with the Titans. He had so many different offensive systems. He did not have the skill position talent that Ryan Tannehill does now. Derrick Henry wasn't established as the kind of running back that he is now. I would love to see Marcus Mariota get a second run um, at a starting job in the NFL. And I think that there probably is going to be a nice little market lined up for him, which is great. Him and Winston both are getting a chance to be reimagined by coaches who aren't in that position. And you root for that because the one fallacy of the NFL draft is like we saw with Cincinnati and Joe Burrow, the teams that are getting these quarterbacks are not good enough to be handling these quarterbacks at the time that they get them and sometimes that costs somebody uh a, you know a really good shot at having a long career and Mariota's still young uh he showed that he's mobile I think he's everything that the league is trending towards anyway and so good for him I think that Mariota is going to be a hot name if the Raiders don't pick up that uh that 10 million dollar option which they should but I think that'll be a a fun little slice of our uh, offseason is a little bit of Mariota watch I really like that. Yeah, it was fun to watch him play and have some success, even though the outcome of the game was not in the Raiders' favor. So um, I agree with you, Connor. I think it was a smart move for the Raiders to bring him in, and he definitely showed that he can have another chance. Definitely. And now for the reason that everybody comes to the Weekside Podcast, what do we have for the Rentis Consensus this week? Consensus. I would just point to Miles Garrett's post-game comments about the severity that COVID-19 is still having on him physically. Here is a defensive player of the year caliber pass rusher who is still struggling with the after effects. He was playing in an NFL game, but post-game he told reporters, I am just getting over a coughing fit from the locker room earlier. I am trying to get some water into my system and be able to breathe. Taking those deep, big breaths are tough right now with the shortness of breath and that turning into a cough or getting choked up. You just have to find a way. It is about desire. It does not matter how I feel. I have to do something on the field. When I get off the field, I can catch my breath and maybe go see someone or try to work with someone. Hopefully, if we make it to the playoffs, I can try to get myself to as close to 100% as possible. I just thought those were some pretty scary comments. Basically, he's 
on the field playing in an NFL game, but afterward he's having a coughing fit. He's struggling to catch his breath. Um, He feels like for his teammates and because the Browns are trying to end their postseason drought that he needs to be on the field to help his team win games, but yet he's dealing with these physical effects. Um, You know, for people who say that it doesn't affect people who are younger, that it only affects older people, I think these were some pretty chilling comments. Again, here is an elite athlete who is having these long-term, long-term might be a stretch, but, um, you know, he's still having after effects after weeks after uh, contracting COVID-19, I think was just an important window. And, while it was difficult for him, I'm surprised that he was doing a post-game interview while, while handling this, but I do think it was important for him to share that, um, that COVID-19 doesn't have two binary outcomes. You know, the only bad thing that could happen is is not just it being fatal, but also you having these physical Im- uh, effects that impact your ability to live your life or, or do your job or whatever the case may be. So just wanted to shed or shine some light on those post-game comments because I thought they were important. That's a great point. And it's what we've talked about, right? Where the NFL is sort of passed on the, uh, passed on the opportunity to be a real pace setter in terms of getting the information out, uh, encouraging people to be safe and socially distant and warning people about this. I, I don't know if this is maybe a, a mistaken or not, but I, I think back to the 90s when there was that first big really rush of PSA announcements that would come out and you know, you'd have Michael Jordan do it or you know Magic Johnson or whatever it was. And you know, you'd have these big super Ken Griffey Jr., these big superstar athletes come out and and tell people that, hey, this is what you know, this is how we can all be be safe together. This is what we need to do. And good for Miles for doing that, because I think that is the modern version of it is being vulnerable, being able to admit um, that, hey, I'm struggling with this. And I I think that's great. and It's valuable. And I think that more players should do it. Uh, And I think that, um, you know, the league should take notice of of someone like that, who's uh, who's definitely doing maybe not the most popular thing, but something that I think is going to help other people sort of wake up and realize that this thing is very serious. Yeah. And Connor, as you said, this was Miles Garrett stepping up and taking the moment and doing that himself, taking that upon himself, that responsibility. So I think it was important to just continue to share that message. Also, I wanted to correct myself. Last week, I misspoke. I meant to say that the Bills had back-to-back 10-win seasons for the first time since 1999. I think it came out a little bit wrong, and I was incorrect in stating my facts there. But that is what they've done. They were 10-6 and last year, 11-3 and so far this year. And so they have been on this trajectory upward where they've really rebuilt the team. And that is an impressive thing to see. So I just wanted to clean that up from last week before we go. Was there any uh, pressure from Bill's mafia? <laughs> there was not. Good. I just realized Good. it the day after and felt kind of silly. So I didn't want to further offend Buffalo fans since I already have, didn't pick them to make the playoffs entering the season. Last week said that I didn't care for Buffalo wings. So I'm really just digging myself a hole. So I'm just trying to. Did you hear anything on that? Did you get any blowback on that? Um, Not really. I, 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 you know, just so they weren't my favorite. They're not bad. They're just not my favorite. A little bit 
a little bit messy for what you get. Totally fair. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. But thanks as always to everyone who has listened and interacted with us throughout this year. We really appreciate all of the engagement, all of you who are loyal listeners. We like to say we have a small but very loyal listener base and that really means a lot to us and it's makes it a lot more special when we hear personally from each of you so thanks to everyone who has reached out via twitter email weeksidepod at gmail.com and we also have the the voicemail line in our podcast description you could still give that a try that's a great point uh jenny uh, please be sure to leave us a review i've seen some of you guys dropping your oracles into uh the review and thank you for all the kind uh words that you have said uh during those times uh yeah and you know like we said it, we're going to be back of course uh next week after uh the holidays and you know in the meantime if anybody feels like you know uh like we we said this um during the thanksgiving season as well but you know i i'm always you know going to check my direct messages if anyone wants to reach out on social media i know this is going to be a uh, a christmas season where you might not have gotten to see as many family members as normal or, you know, you're going to be, uh, you know, cooped up a little bit. And if that's the case, um, I'll be sure to try to run around and uh, check my direct messages. Uh, I'll, I'll tr- be sure to try to check weeksidepod at gmail.com. You know, if you're bored during the holidays, you want to fight about football for a little bit, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, we'll be around. I'll be around. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for your time as always. The Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Marivic is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed. And while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.